What do you do after serving in both the state House of Representatives and the state Senate and term out by the tender age of 34? That's when most people start thinking about running for state office. Well, that's what happened to Kenneth Korn. So let's catch up with him. I'm Garland McWaters, and this is the Spirit of Leading podcast. Kenneth Korn represented the area of the state around Poto in both the House and the Senate. Then he ran for lieutenant governor, and he didn't win that race. He stayed out of politics, but then returned in 2015 to public service, and now he's the city manager of Anadarko, Oklahoma. And uh, Kenneth, thank you so much for taking time out of, I know what's a really busy day around here right now, to uh, talk with me about your experience in public service and working in Anadarko and other places in public service. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm glad to do it. What got you going? I mean, that's an early bug to bite, you know, to get you started in your early 20s. Well, I uh, was interested in politics since I was nine years old. Uh, There was a young guy by the name of Larry Dickerson who was running for the state Senate uh, back in 1986. Uh, Had just come by my mom and dad's home. I was outside in the yard playing, and he was telling my mom and dad why he wanted to be in the state Senate and asked for their vote. And I was kind of intrigued about what he talked about and and listening. And so from that point on, I was kind of bitten by the bug i actually would decorate my little red wagon at the time and and put his signs on it and go up and down the street and later on as a kid i'd knock door to door for candidates that i that i liked uh, you know people like wes watkins and uh david walters and uh david Bourne, just to name a few that that i as a young guy went out and knocked doors mm-hmm. for and so that was uh, something that caught my interest and then as i learned really about what government and politics was about I knew that's where I wanted to be, that my life ambition was to be someone who made an impact uh, on the lives of others and wanted to see the work that I did to make sure that it could be seen and leave a lasting impact that uh, left the world a little better than, than how I found it. What was that first race like when you went out and started knocking doors for yourself? Did someone say, now, Sonny, you're a little young to be <laughs> doing that, aren't you? We heard a, a lot when I ran the first time about how I was too young uh, to be in the Oklahoma House of Representatives and uh, something we had to combat. Uh, in fact, my other opponents, I had, I believe, four other people in the primary race who just totally dismissed me. They did not really think I had a chance to win. But I literally went and knocked on every door in the district. Uh, at the time, I didn't know anything about a walk list that candidates have now. I knocked on every door that I could find and talked to voters and told them what I wanted to do. And uh, it'd be 110-degree heat out there, but I would be out there in a long sleeve shirt and a tie and, and dress slacks, and, and I would talk to people. And if I missed them, I left a note on the door that said, sorry, I missed you. I'd appreciate your vote. Mm-hmm. Or if they had my opponent sign in their yard, I'd always say, well, I know I'm not your first choice, but could I be your second? And it really paid off. Uh, And one of the things we talked about, too, was I had a number of folks who watched me as I uh, grew up uh, came out for me. And one of them was a veteran in town who said, he goes, at 18, I was in Vietnam. And if if, if I can be over in a foreign country at that age fighting for our country, he can fight for me on the House floor. And so things like that really helped me. Uh, other people stood in and said, hey, we know this kid. We know he can do the job. And, and it's, uh, it paid off in the end. We won the primary, uh, actually led it. And I got into the runoff with a guy who played uh, on the national championship team at OU when he was there. And he was a very wealthy businessman in town. Uh, and everybody was just surprised it was me and him. But I led him in that, in that primary. 
And then uh, in the runoff, I beat him almost two to one. Mm. And it was just a real shock to everybody that in the Democratic primary that this 21-year-old kid beat everybody. Yeah, well, that's an amazing story. And uh, I like to tell hear stories like that because I've always uh, had the, I, the bug bit me early, too, you know, when I was young. And so we encourage young people, uh, why wait, you know, why wait till you're 35 or 40 or 50 or 60 years old before you think you're ready to run because the the Constitution says, what, 21? 21. 21, that's it. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing I, I would always tell folks, too, because when I'd campaign, they'd say, well, you have no life experience. And one of the things I would always counter with is, well, that's not exactly true. Um, you know, I, I had a chance when I was in college to go to China and study and experience the world outside of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So that was an experience no one else had had. And so I had a little bit more broader understanding of the world. I'd interned at the Capitol already for uh, Representative Jim Hamilton on the Appropriations Committee. Uh, I'd been involved in all sorts of community projects since I was nine years old, so I had a lot of experience. It may not have been the experience that they necessarily had, but I had experience that was valuable towards the job. Yep. And then the, the thing that I also would stress to people is, as a young man going to the legislature like I was, I had no alliances built, no special interests to go, because I wasn't working for some industry like the oil and gas or the banking industry or anything like that. So when I went there, I was really a free agent for the people I represented. There was nobody paying me any more money to, to be there. Or, or when I was out of the legislature, I didn't work anywhere else. I, I was just a full-time legislator. And I kept it that way because I didn't ever want the votes I cast or the decisions I was making at the Capitol to be under question. I wanted the people to know that I was there for them and i always believed in that scripture it says you can't serve two masters and uh, and i believe that's the case and so at the legislature i just solely work for the people in my district well that's a way i think most people expect that their legislators think in terms of uh, representing me in my best interest and not any special interest one over another and i i would hope that uh, most people still at least somewhere in the back of their mind have that as an ideal You said earlier you wanted to be able to make a difference and see the difference you made. What would you say during the time that you were in the legislature were some of the accomplishments that you're proud of that you still look back on and say that made a difference at that time? So legislatively, I would say my greatest achievement at the state capitol was making sure that teachers and education support employees in the state got their health insurance paid for. At the time that I arrived in the legislature, they weren't getting their health insurance so every time the legislature gave them a raise, it was eaten up by increased cost of health care. Mm -hmm. So I really pushed that through the legislature at the time that that bill passed initially. Uh, we were in a budget crunch, and no one thought I could get it done. But with the help of Senator Cal Hobson at the time, uh, we got it across the finish line and made sure teachers and support staff got their health insurance. And health insurance is always an issue that I think is uh, critically important for people in this state. Uh, that have access to care. I watched my mom and dad not really have access to health care, and they both died at a relatively young age, and I think it's primarily because uh, they didn't have the access. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I was able to do that for thousands of Oklahomans, I think is probably my, my best achievement legislatively. Uh, but I think you also you can look at other things you can do as a legislator. Not everything is passing bills. Um, I was really a person that stood up for the people in my district when they needed help. I was their last line of defense on a lot of, a lot of things. 
And the one that I remember the most is I had a, a uh, family call me about their child who had a brain aneurysm. And the only place they could go to get the surgery they needed was at the Dallas Children's Hospital. And unfortunately, the Dallas Children's Hospital did not take Oklahoma Medicaid. And so uh, they contacted me, and I happened to know a Texas legislator, so I called them and reached out if he could get me in contact with someone with the Children's Hospital there. And um, he did. I got to talk to their lobbyist, and they made an arrangement where for this particular case, they would accept Oklahoma Medicaid if the Oklahoma Medicaid system would approve it. So uh, then I went to work on the Medicaid system. And, and probably one of the angriest times I've ever had dealing with a state agency, I was dealing with a person who had to make that approval. And uh, she made the statement to me that this was taxpayer money and that people who got their health care from taxpayers uh, couldn't expect the best health care. So I sat there for a minute and I said, uh, well, do you have health insurance? Which I obviously knew she did because she worked for the state. And she says, well, yes. I said, well, who pays for that? Aren't you on a taxpayer-funded health insurance? She got really quiet, and I said, now, I expect this to be approved because I know you expect the best quality care on your taxpayer health insurance plan that's being paid for. I expect this to be approved for this child, and I don't want to ever hear that out of your mouth again. And it got approved. And so uh, another time... Um, I'd actually forgotten about it, but when I was out campaigning for Brad Carson, when he was running for the U.S. Senate, I was at an event, and I uh, asked a guy, I said, I'd sure like you to vote for my friend Brad. And he goes, I'll vote for whoever you want me to vote for. If it hadn't been for you, our child would not be here. Hmm. So to me, as a legislator, um, that is, is, I think, one of the most satisfying things, that I could get something done because of the position of power that I held that they couldn't get done for themselves. Right. Well, that's the right use of power is the, what, what, the way I would think about that is it's using it for not your selfish purposes, but because you can't help someone. We entrust people to help find the means to help make things happen for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we hope that uh, when it comes time that, you know, that they will do that. And uh, that's a great service. That's a great public. And it's selfless in that regard. It's not for a special interest. It's for what you would do for anybody. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, it kind of hit me as a, a real moment of awareness of why people get into public service. You can say, why would you want to do that? And uh, that's a real interesting question because when you become a public servant, I mean, everybody thinks they own you, right? Uh, yeah, they, you get lots of uh, requests. Some of them are unreasonable. Some of them are, are reasonable. But you also have uh, expectations sometimes that are just out of this world. And uh, I always say everybody should serve in some public office at least one point in their life to really understand about what you face uh, when you're doing it. Because uh, you also come under a lot of criticism. I, I always said when I was in office, uh, Facebook and uh, these uh, chat rooms were just starting up. Mm -hmm. And so we were the first people to experience the onslaught of everybody having an opinion. And, and, and if you didn't know anything about yourself, all you had to do was go in the chat room and read it because they, they, would, they would certainly put it out there for you. Yeah, they'll, they'll tell you what you ought to think about yourself for sure sometimes. But, uh, but you know, that goes with the territory in a mm -hmm. sense. You know, if the criticism goes with the territory of accepting that responsibility. Well, and I'll tell you, um, I had to long, think long and hard about this one. Uh, my father died in, in 2008, and uh, at his funeral service, 
My dad was a simple guy, blue jeans, uh, Western shirt. He oversaw an inmate crew for the city and he, he mowed and stuff. So, um, my dad didn't like politics, although he thought I would be governor someday. Uh, in fact, I wanted to quit politics at one point. So my dad said, no, you need to stay in there. Uh, no one will stand up for anybody like you will. You got to stay, just keep doing it. Uh, but when my, my, my father died, um, at the funeral service, uh, people were coming through the line, and, they, and being the sitting senator, there were people from all over the state came and that I had dealt with, and uh, one guy came through the line. I was standing there next to my mother. I finally just stood up so I could shake every hand that came through, and he said, uh, sorry about your loss, Senator, uh, but I need to talk to you about an issue, and I kind of got bent out of shape. I said, if you'll call me on Monday, I'll, you know, I'll see what I can do to help you, but I was a little bent out of shape about it because I thought, I can't even get a moment to bury my dad. And I thought about it a lot afterwards, and I thought, you know, I asked for this job, and that's a part of it. Uh, my dad would want me to do my job. So I, I, I had to talk myself down from being angry at that moment mm -hmm. to, to realize that if you ask for the job, then you need to be prepared to, to do all the things that come along with it. Right, and not everyone is quite as sensitive about the situation as you might be. <laughs> uh, that, that's correct. I mean, I had, I had when I'd go to people's funerals across uh, my district, I would have people meet me in the parking lot to talk to me about, about stuff. So that's when I learned uh, the trick of uh, I'd call the funeral home ahead of time, tell them I was coming, uh, save me a seat. I'd come in at the beginning of the service and sit down, and then I'd be the first one through so I could be out to my car and gone, so I didn't get into inappropriate conversations with people at funeral well, services. Now, now, I, now I can understand why, uh, why politicians very often do that, because uh, they can get cornered very easily. But, uh, but I appreciate that story, because it really it, it calls uh, attention to one of the, the things that I always like to ask people in public service is, uh, what do you tell people who are thinking about getting into public service, what to expect of it? Uh, what's it like? Uh, how does it affect, affect your life? How does your life change? What do you learn about yourself going through that process of giving yourself to public service like that? Well, one of the things is I started very young, so not everybody does it at that, that point. Um, but I, w I always tell people, for me, um, it became all involving in every aspect of my life, um, from really the people I were friends with, to what groups I was a member of, uh, how much I was at home, uh, what things I attended. And so it really is a family affair at some point. So your entire family needs to be bought into being public service because they're also brought into it. It's just not you, it's, it's them too. Uh, so I, I think you need to be prepared for that. Your family needs to be prepared for that. I also give young people advice too. Uh, I'm currently not married. Uh, I think probably one of the things of going into politics as early as I did, I was so involved in it that it really encompassed my life that that's all I really thought about. My work at the Capitol, raising money for re-election, making a network across the state that I never really at the time um, developed a, spent the time to develop a relationship where I ended up getting a family and getting started. So I encourage, I encourage young people if, if that's their goal in life is also to have a family, if you choose public service, be careful that it doesn't completely take over your life. I've heard the same thing about coaching. Yeah, and, and, and I'll tell you, in 2010, when I lost lieutenant governor's race, um, it's like my world collapsed mm -hmm. because for 12 years, I had been the senator from this district, 
and uh, and everything I ever did was related in being the senator. And I'd spent all my time at the Capitol, and and so it was really a uh, shock. And then six months later, my my mother died, so my world really got kind of turned upside down. So I. I so I would caution people, too, to make sure that they find balance if they're going to do it. Uh, it's, I think public service is extremely important. It's an honorable profession. But the balance in your life and with your family is important, too. So that's one of the things I, I would caution people to do. So you got out of it for a while and went into uh, pri- uh, private, private sector work. And uh, and so in a sense, was that did you see that kind of as a reset where you kind of, you'd kind of go back to square one, figuring okay, now who is kind of this guy Kenneth Corn that I used to know, <laughs> and who's he going to become, and what's next? Sure. sure. Well, I went in the private sector. I was really surprised. I I didn't really look for a job when I left. I thought I need a break just a little bit, and I got a call from a company in my area that said, hey, we'd like for you to come by, and and I went and they offered me a job. Actually, I was going to make twice the amount of money than what I made as a state legislator. So I jumped at it because I was like, oh, I'll actually have some money now. Uh, everybody thinks the legislators, it has a lot of money. That's not always the case. So I went to work for them, and, and, and they were very good to me. I can't complain about how I was treated. I, I went through the ranks of the company pretty quick. I was like the number two guy when I left. Uh, however, it wasn't satisfying to me. It was, I did things that improved the company. In fact, uh, the owner of the company's wife told me she was so glad I was there because since I came to the company, uh, that he'd actually would go on vacation. So they could go have a family vacation <laughs> and leave the company and know things were still going to be fine. So there, I mean, I was making a difference towards that company, but it wasn't a difference that fed my soul. It wasn't a difference that I could see that benefited others. Sure, I was making good money, and this company was doing well, uh, but it, it wasn't what made me want to get up in the morning. But I also got to see from that perspective to some of the challenges that small businesses face with regulation of government and the ability to find employable people that have the skills that are necessary mm-hmm. for the industry in which you have and, uh, and dealing with some of the bureaucracy with health insurance and property insurance and all those things. So I I think it broadened my perspective a little bit on what it is to try to make a business successful in the state. But I also knew after a while, I didn't want to do that any longer. Mm -hmm. Well, now you find yourself back uh, working in a municipal government. So how is that? How did that transition work for you? You know, it it worked uh, pretty well. Uh, One of the things, one of the reasons why I think I got this job was the fact they knew I knew lots of people. Uh, this community had been in a situation where they had been through, I think, about six city managers before I got here. It seemed like every eight to 12 months they were getting a new one. Um, there was really un, uh, instability here, and uh, the finances were terrible. So I think the thing that helped me was they saw that I had connections in state government that could help bring revenue to the city for much-needed projects. And I also think that they saw that I had experience with budgets, and it's a little different as a legislative budget than it is a municipal budget, but they knew I could understand money. And so uh, I did the interview here. We talked about the needs of the community, and they offered me the job. And and actually, I was very apprehensive about taking it because of all the problems that were here. So we struck a deal. Uh, 
I would come to Anadarko and take this job and move across the state away from my family if they would give me a three-year contract. Because I didn't want to move over here in six months and make a lot of unpopular decisions and get fired. And, uh, and they said, okay, well, if we guarantee you three years, then you have to guarantee us that you won't leave in three years. So we created a, a, an agreement of stability for both sides. And, uh, and I also told them that if I came here, uh, we were going to run the city according to city codes, uh, not according to who owns the bank or who, uh, who has the wealthy family in town or who knows the mayor. I wasn't going to run the city that way. It would be run according to the city codes. And if they didn't lock the city code, they needed to change it. Uh, that was their obligation, not mine. And so uh, they all agreed that's what we would do. And I came to Anadarko, came to Anadarko and, and it's been very successful, I think, here. We've, I've made a lot of changes. I have a good staff here that has been willing to work with me. Now, they get frustrated with me, for sure. Uh, but I'm, I'm more inclusive as a city administrator. I include my, my managers in on decisions. Uh, they may not like the decision, but they got heard in the process of it. Even the city budget, I do it like I do. Uh, I did when I was a subcommittee chairman in the Senate. I'd bring everybody in. I'd make them justify what they requested, and then we would whittle it down based upon the money that we had. So mm -hmm. it's it's been a it's been a really interesting process here. And I've now been through. Uh, I'm now through my fourth mayor. Usually, it's the city manager that goes. I've mm -hmm. been wearing out mayors instead of the, uh, the other way around. Yeah. Well, they're elected, too. So I guess they finally throw up their hands and quit. So I think I had enough of Ken. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've had, I've had some very good mayors yeah. here, and I, I've been really appreciative to have a council who has given me the lead way to do the things that's necessary to make this community uh, move in the right direction. Well, that's good to hear because, I mean, that's one of the things that interests me about the dynamics of working in a municipality is that you, as the city manager, you're responsible for carrying out, you know, the operational side of the city itself, but yet you answer to a group of politicians. It's kind of like working with a board, you know, as a superintendent of school board and that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and, and how, did, how did that work for, how did that transition work for you being now, not on the policy side, but on the execution side now, on the sort of ex executive side? Well, uh, uh, two things I think was helpful. One is uh, I had been a politician, so I know that side of the, the coin. And two, I'd been an employee somewhere else where I wasn't the person in charge. So I was able to marry the two experiences together. One of the things that I've done with my council here is if I know something's happening in one of my council members' wards, or if I'm going to get ready to make a decision that's going to be unpopular, he hears it or she hears it from me. They don't hear it from somewhere else. If there's anything getting ready to happen, I try to make sure they know about it so they're not caught at Walmart and find out about it. Mm -hmm. Because nothing would make me matter as an elected official to find out about something somewhere else and not know about it. And so I've tried to do really, really a good job at keeping them informed. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, when, uh, when I have a water break in town, I, I call the mayor, let them know there's a water break and what the course of action I'm going to take. So that's the one thing that we've done. And then the other is uh, uh, the policy side of it, uh, they depend on me really to gather the information and so that they can have it. So we've built a trusted relationship here so that they know if I tell them something, that is, in fact, what the truth is. And if I don't know the answer, I'm, I will tell them I don't know the answer. I'll need to go find it. Mm -hmm. And so these guys have been really good about working with me on that. 
and uh, it's and the other thing about the councils that I have that I've been really proud about too often elected officials just want to make people happy and I guess that's how you get votes you know you got to get 51% of them to, to, to like you but this council has really made the decision and we talked about it a long time about what is your legacy going to look like after being on the city council if you just want to be on the council so you can say I served on the city council for 20 years but did nothing and the community deteriorates that's the the legacy you have but if you're on the council and you make hard decisions that moves the community forward uh, and you get beat you can go home at night and be uh, self-assured that you did the right thing that moved the community forward and so that that's the way this council has operated here and that's been our philosophy uh, the entire time I've been in the administration here is let's make the decision that moves the city forward even if it's unpopular uh, and because leadership really requires you to do that and I think too often today people who go into these leadership roles just want to hear the roar and the uh, the applause of the crowd well, at some point in leadership, you've got to tell the crowd they're wrong, and in order to correct the problems that they're facing, tough decisions have to be made. Right. Well, leaders lead. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, we do here, that I emphasize here on the spirit of leading, is that uh, leaders lead, and they're responsible to step forward and show people the way, and sometimes that's not a popular way, or people don't understand, or they've, they have uh, a, a, an interest in going one direction not understanding all of the implications down the road of where that might take them or the, or what might happen if they go do that but someone who can see that far has got to be able to stand up and say listen i think we need to rethink that we need to go this way and uh and and i think what we're really looking around for in our communities and leadership when we talk about leadership and i know it's important in business as it is any place else to say leaders lead the way you know as one popular leadership expert says they they know the way and show the way and go the way. And so we, uh, we do all of those things in a leadership role because we're willing to take that hit. You know, we know that it may not be popular, but it's necessary. But, uh, but, tr but trust us, because if we lead you down the wrong road just because you want to go there and you go over the cliff, whose fault is that? Yeah, you're just as much at fault as anybody else if you let that happen. Yeah, and so that's, that's part of, I think, what you have to accept as leader is a leadership role is uh, we're not just, uh, we're looking to you to lead us to, the, to a better place. And I think that's, uh, that's an important uh, maybe perspective that leaders should think about is that people ask me to lead not because I've read the latest poll and I know where they want to go, but I see what is necessary and I know that I need to change their minds and build their confidence and gain their trust so that I can take them to the place that's going to be better for them. Well, and I think that's what a lot of my council members have been really willing to do is uh, we have a number of hearings. We, we started doing town hall meetings once I got here so we could hear what the public wanted us to do. And some of those things we try to incorporate, but I also try to tell them one of the things you have to do is you have to do a lot of things we need to do is water and sewer infrastructure. No one sees that. You know, you're spending millions of dollars and it's going into the ground and everybody thinks you're doing nothing. Uh, so I said, you got to find a healthy balance of let's do let's spend this million dollars on this sewer pipe. But then let's spend fifty thousand dollars on putting some new playground equipment at the park. 
because people will notice the playground equipment. They'll never notice the, right. the, the sewer line. So we tried to find a balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing that's been really hard here is the city of Anadarko had not raised its utility rates since 1992. Mm. So it was really behind, and the infrastructure was crumbling. This council here, uh, we faced an $800,000 shortfall. I sat down. I met with all of them. We went through it. I gave them options. Option A was to cut everything to the bone, eliminate a lot of employees, um, get rid of some of the services that the public was used to. There was a combination of some increases and some cuts. And then there was, these are the increases we need to maintain where we're at and move forward. And this council actually took the bull by the horns and said, well, if we're going to do this and make people unhappy anyhow, let's raise them where they need to be so we can make progress. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they did it. Yeah. And surprisingly enough, it was a unanimous vote of the council, even by my one council member who often was a negative on everything. He voted for it and they defended it. And now in this city, if you go around, you see projects happening all over town for the embetterment of the entire community right. and people feel it now. So right. I, I just think leaders have to be willing to step out there and uh, make the tough decisions and be able to defend those tough decisions. I know in the legislature, when I would make a, a vote that people didn't like, if I couldn't go home and explain it, then I was in trouble. But if I could explain it, people would say, oh, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I understand what you did, what you did. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, great advice, great advice. Because a lot of times, uh, what people don't understand is you have to have the infrastructure right so that the other things can build on top of that. It's like, it's, it's anything. It's whether it's your personal health or whatever. If the inside ain't right, you know, That's you're going to have trouble. Well, that, that's one of the challenges you have, too, is as a leader, is you, you hear a lot of times people say, well, that's the way we've always done it. It drives me absolutely insane. You have to think outside the box sometimes to get things accomplished. And in, in this community, particularly uh, when I got here, there was, if you drove around town, you'd notice there's buffaloes. You saw the buffalo cutouts, the different mm-hmm. statues around town. You said, you've got to do things too about the quality of life that wants to get people to come through and feel like they're in a safe community, that it looks nice. I said, part of economic development it's convincing people they need and want to be here. Mm-hmm. And I said, it was very unwelcoming when I came to Anadarko. The welcome signs looked like headstones. The flowers and everything were dead in front of them. The lights didn't work on them. And so you're, there were gopher holes everywhere. Uh, I mean, it was just, you know, it was kind of jarring. And I think when you live in a place for so long, it's good to have someone come from the outside to, to, right. to see the things that you've gotten used to. So we started changing that, and we got to doing some public art and some things like that to make it a place where people, if they come to town, they, oh, I want to have a picture of that buffalo. Because if you ever get them to stop, there's a chance they're going to get gas or they're going to buy something at a store. And so it generates some activity in the community. But we got that all done with private money, not city money, even though people here will tell you that I spent their electric bill money to put buffaloes. That's not true. Uh, but then the other thing we've been doing a lot of is we've been trying to tear down old houses in these community in mm-hmm. these neighborhoods, because um, what we had found was that uh, um, when someone would come to town and look, even though we'd cleaned up the main thoroughfare through town, they would go into the neighborhoods, and when they would see these old abandoned 
dilapidated houses, they'd say, no, I'm not moving my family there. So we've been now concentrating on getting a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. cleaned up and out of the way. But the process is hard, uh, but it has to be done. And so that's one thing I think leaders have to really understand, too. It's not easy. There are a lot of things you have to do that are hard. You've got to be prepared to do those things. And really the leadership in this community has been willing to do those. Uh, and, I, and I'll tell you a challenge here about thinking outside the box. The Bureau of Indian Affairs is a large federal agency that is here. There are seven Native American mm-hmm. tribes at headquarters here. And there's a lot of individual trust land in the city of Anadarko. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, individual trust lands means I have no authority on it. I can't enforce the city uh, maintenance code on it. If a crime com- is committed on it, I can't enforce the city city or state laws on it. It's federal land that only federal agents can do. And so we've got a lot of property throughout town that's uh, trust property that needs to be cleaned up. And we could get nowhere. So I kept calling the BIA office here, and they'd always say, well, that's a decision we can't make. That's a decision that has to be made in Washington. And after about two years of getting that decision that's going to be made in Washington, I told the mayor, let's go to Washington. So we flew to Washington, D.C., met with our congressional leadership on the Hill, and then went to the Bureau of Indian Affairs headquarters of the Department of Interior and met with them. I had a check waiting on me in Anadarko to start tearing down houses and cleaning up property. So you got to think outside the box and yeah. not be willing to accept people's answers. And, and we've been able to make some progress on that property, too, because we were willing to step out. So now every year we go to Washington to meet with BIA and our congressional leaders so we can keep the momentum moving forward. Well, that's, a, that's just like the story you heard earlier in, this, uh, in our interview where, this, where a person came to you and said, we need your help. <laughs> right. And now here you are going to Washington and say, we need your help. And so it works all the way around, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> you got to ask. You gotta that's ask. one thing. You got to stay on the radar screen, and, and a lot of times people won't do that. Yeah. Tell me about small towns. I mean, you grew up in a relatively small town in Poto. Uh, and and you're working and living in a small town here and committed to it. So uh, what do you have to say about life in a small town, that if someone was thinking about making a life change in some way, say you ought to consider a small community someplace, a place that you would raise your family or be a part of and invest yourself in. What would you, what what case would you make for small towns? Well, I think part of the, the charm and the quality of living in a small town is the fact that you, know who your neighbors are, uh, that there is a sense of community among smaller uh, smaller towns that you don't get necessarily in a metro area. So everybody knows each other, and I think that's really important. Two, I also think you have a a better chance to make an impact in a smaller community because there's lots of opportunities here, and the need for leadership is, uh, is great in small communities. And so you can really make a tremendous impact. Uh, it's kind of like being a, 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 a big fish in a small pond. Uh, you really can be a big fish here and do some really interesting and things that impact people's lives in a smaller community. And then it's just a slower pace of life. Uh, you know, all the years I spent in Oklahoma City, the capital, traffic drove me crazy. It was just fast-paced all the time. And things go in a little bit slower motion here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sometimes good for people. 
And then the other thing is you, you do have a chance here, especially if you have a family, you have a chance in, in to be really involved in your child's education in a smaller community. Your access to your schools are probably better. Um, you have a chance to really get involved on community boards. It's not like you have to be someone that's connected to the mayor here to be involved. Uh, like sometimes in Oklahoma City and stuff, to get on these boards or commissions, you got to know somebody that's already elected. That's not the case in a small community. So there's lots of opportunities here. And then I think uh, the other thing is, I tell you, the cost of living here is a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will tell you, it's much cheaper. Uh, people complain about the utility bills here in Anadarko all the time. That's because they've never paid a utility bill anywhere else in the state. Because <laughs> I can promise you, uh, my utility bills when I lived in Oklahoma City and in Poto are much higher than they were ever here. So there's there's opportunities here, uh, and there's opportunities to make real impacts here. We actually have a group that's looking to locate to uh, Anadarko, and I've been meeting with them. They're from Montana. They've actually been given an offer for a facility in Oklahoma City, uh, but they've come to us and said, we'd really like to come to Anadarko because if we go to Oklahoma City, yeah, it'll be nice, but we won't have a big footprint or impact. No one will even notice that we, we've done anything. But if we come to Anadarko, we'll have a chance to make a real impact on the community and help spur economic development and revival. And so I think you got to ask your question to yourself about living in a metro area or in a small town. Mm-hmm. Where can you make the biggest impact? Where can you right. have the biggest uh, um, uh, footprint? And I think a smaller community allows you to do that with a good quality of life as well. Well, that's certainly a lot of incentive to want to do that. And I can speak, uh, and I know a lot of others can speak from their own experience of living in smaller towns. So anyway, it's great to see that you're doing well. And uh, I wish you well in your your, uh, efforts here in Anadarko. And I know you're making a big impact. Well, I really appreciate you visiting uh, our city today. And I hope you get a chance to go around and see some of the things that are available here. We did take a little trip around. And we can relate to the things you were talking about, you know, and trying to to improve your your community. And uh, we wish you well and continued success in that. Right. Thank you very much. Well, listen, that's uh, Kenneth Korn, who is the uh, city manager here in uh, Anadarko, Oklahoma. A uh, young man still who uh, had an early career in politics as a state legislator and a state senator and also uh, kind of uh, peeked into uh, the state level of political scene for a while. Maybe he'll think about that again someday, but he's shaking his head no. <laughs> and uh, But uh, who knows, you know, who knows? We say things uh, and, and then later on uh, we find out that maybe the calling is caught up with us and, and uh, we see our opportunities. But we do want to thank Kenneth for uh, his time today. I know he's got much to do and we appreciate you uh, hosting us here in uh, your and your offices uh, to let us record this uh, Spirit Leading podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of the Spirit of Leading, and I want to thank you for uh, joining us on this episode. Uh, I also want to encourage you to uh, reach out to other people and have them uh, check out the Spirit of Leading podcast and encourage the people around your community who you see are living empowered lives, people who are looking around and asking the question, well, how can I make things better? So we hope that uh, you will uh, live empowered in your own experience, that you will unleash the creative energy that you possess. I encourage you to enliven the heart, to enlighten the mind, to encourage the spirit, and to enlarge the expectations of living in yourself and in others. I'm Garland McWaters.